Well, we could put a lot more, we could get a lot more boards and stay until Tuesday, but if we don't have our faith built, what good is it? So, I remember, you know, we've talked a lot about relationships and connections, and Pastor just talked a lot about it. I remember when God first, we first met. <laughs> I'm going to get that crying thing on me. <laughs> but Pastor Coward came from, sorry if I tell him how much that check was. Okay. He came to the church where I was serving God, serving a pastor. I was the executive director and I'd never met him. I was sitting over here. He came to a service, was it a Wednesday night even maybe? Maybe it was a special meeting. Special. Okay, okay. It was a special meeting. But he, I remember this carpet was the same color. You know, I was just seeing you up there, but I, I, I can still see you down here. And he was standing here like this, and it was shaking like that. He had an offering. And it was the biggest one he'd ever even dreamt of giving. And he was shaking. It was, it was, he was at the beginning stages. It was $30,000 that he brought. God told him to bring $30,000. And, and he was, I mean, not, he wasn't trying not to shake, but he, you know, it was huge for him. Huge. And everybody was telling him, uh, the, certainly the enemy, you know, you're crazy. You're an idiot, you know. And uh, how, much, how many, you didn't even mention the property on, uh, how many acres is that? Fifty-five acres, and uh, God blessed them with. Years later, He wanted to take me out. We went out on the in the SUV. We had to drive through this beautiful field. There's the Rocky Mountains and Pikes Peak, and we're in this just virgin territory. There were elk on the property. You know, what are those elk? Oh my gosh, they're roaming around. <clears throat> How many acres again? 55 acres, and he got it. It, was it wasn't free, but it was practically a gift. And, I, and I, all I could remember was that seed he sowed. And I, I called Carol, as I was crying, I was crying. I mean, the presence of God was on us there that day, and his favor was there, and all I could remember was the seed he sowed. He's a giver, he's a giver, and so are you. And so are you guys. And uh, you gave last year that got us this far. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Those of you that were here, thank you. And thank you again this year. And uh, we're just getting started. We're just getting warmed up. And I am uh, so grateful for you guys. I'm grateful that you, you honor me by letting you share what God's put in me so you can be all you can be. But there's a lot, like he said, that, you know, haven't worked it, haven't done it. It works, but you got to work it. And uh, so thanks for building our faith. <clears throat> and for all of you for sowing and, and uh, encouraging us like you always do. And uh, we're... we're uh, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, we're going to another level here too. We're we're gonna we got a product now, and we got a lot of good things going 
in the right direction. And I, so many of you have come up and offered ideas and things, and that, you know, we just, God is multiplying now. And so thank you for helping us um, multiply and reach more pastors. I mean, that's, that's all I care about. As, I mean, my mandate is to reach as many pastors in my lifetime that I possibly can with the things God's taught me. And I'm still learning. You know, every time I sit down to write, yeah, I learn something new. I've been learning, I learned something new last night till one in the morning. And um, some of it will be for another day. I had to put half the folders back in the case, but I got a couple left here and I can't even do all these. But God still instructing me, teaching me. I got the system, but now he can show me more about how to teach you and how to show you how to work it, how to apply it. Uh, in your ministry, in your life. And uh, we just love you guys and thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for believing in us and for supporting our mandate while we try to help you do yours. And uh, God will bless you. I believe we'll believe for a bountiful return. What did you just... Yeah, thank you, honey. Carol said she wants praise reports. So will you send us the praise reports so we can share them with others? We, yeah, and I don't have it out here, but I think I've established enough integrity with you, believe me, that he, he did. He, Pastor Cassie would have been sitting in one of the four, another chair, and he would have read the very first thing under Faith Life Church, point one, God told me, tell, told me and to you tell them to believe in land and houses, he said first houses, buildings, sorry, buildings and land free, believe for it. So we want the praise reports. And we'll share them. Okay, well we better get going. We're heading toward the barn here uh, for lunch, but uh, we've got 35 minutes or so and I'll do the best I can. So I told you yesterday, uh, ultimate discipleship, uh, making discipleship a strategic responsibility, a strategic intent. And my intent is that you see it in a new and profoundly larger way than you've ever seen it before, the value of discipleship. And you know, the tragedy is that the world system knows it better than we do, they just don't call it that but they know how critical it is to sustain growth. So yes, uh, you came all the way here, all the way from Zambia and India and every other place to get a profoundly new and deeper understanding of discipleship. I'm gonna flip a lot of pages here. All expanding entities reach critical transition points whereby fundamental change needs to take place within everyone. Let me get one. Within everyone, in order to move from one level to the next. I've said this several times, but let me make sure you understand. In order for you to be ultimate, your people undergirding you have to become ultimate. They have to become very, very good to keep you there. This team has to be 85, 90% of you as quickly as possible. They're making the CEO decisions like you did for you. A seismic shift. The best way to keep any ministry on course for success 
the talent serving God. Get, and, and remember I said it's about you making sure they do. So let's start it again. The best way to keep any mystery on course for success is to give the talent serving God all the responsibility that they can handle and then stand back. Or we said yesterday, get out of the way. Trust is a human marvel. It's, it is, it's the growth hormone that turns lethargic ministries into dynamic, highly torqued, optimum, ultimate ministries. So when you relinquish more leading to others, and when they relinquish more leading to others, when everybody when you, when you get depth and build depth and have deeper teams, then everybody's doing this. Relinquishing more, which in turn requires you, your direct reports or anybody's direct reports, to assume more, therefore having to relinquish more. And when we relinquish more, when, when you put more on people, then, they have, then that's when they say, I can't deal with this, I can't handle it, I have to delegate because they're going to be as reluctant to do it as you were. For the same reasons that you used, the same excuses that you used. So, but now your job is to ensure that they do what you learned to do, and to do that. Creating a climate culture, a climate or a culture that enables people to unleash their potential. The Navy ship, in seven months, went from one of the worst in the fleet, dysfunctional, low morale, no re-enlistment, to the best, they won the award. 104.5 out of 105 points on, on a battle readiness test. Get out of the way, turn them loose. Means defining the parameters in which people are allowed to operate and then set them free. The goal is to create a universe of satellite CEOs People at every level of your ministry who can act and make decisions as close as possible to the way you would have made them. And then they don't make a decision exactly the way you would have made it, or it's not the most effective, or it did some little bit of damage, didn't sink the ship, didn't defy Navy regs, and it didn't kill anybody. Okay, it's a learning opportunity. And it's only a learning opportunity over in here if these people are teaching, are, are working with them for them to learn and gain the experience. What did you learn from this experience? And they won't make that mistake again. That's how we grow. Now, this, <clears throat> let me put this up on the board because I want you to have this and you can use this, this illustration. But uh, <clears throat> let's, I, want, I want you to see how people learn. And uh, to, I want to try to do this quickly, but 10% from what they read. 20%, they're all percentages, from what they read, uh, from what they hear, I'm sorry, from what they hear. 30% from what they see. That's why we try to do the whiteboards. 50% from what they see and hear, the combination of the previous two, see and hear. 70% from what they say, 
and write. That's why we have workbooks in the maximum train, maximum CEO training, and you and that's why you're taking copious notes now. That's why you have those three ring punched uh, notepads. But you, you be, we don't. I don't want to hand you something completed. When, because when you say it and write it, so make sure. Now that, that instructor's guide I'm going to give to you as the instructor. <clears throat> but don't give that to your people and say, Here's the, here it is, I don't have to teach you anything. No, get them, run the video, let them, and don't lecture them. Run the video, let them look at it, and then say, okay, what did you get out of this? What did you learn? What are you going to do different? What changes are you going to make based on that? You think we can do that? What would be some of the inhibitors? Questions, questions, questions. What would be some of the inhibitors to learning that? How did, what, how did you feel when you, read, when you saw that, that uh, DVD, the, se the session, session uh, 13? How did you feel about that? What did you learn? What did you glean? What changes are you going to make based on that? What will we have to do to help others change, to get that, to make that happen? What, don't tell them anything. Just ask questions. And we didn't hardly talk about that, but that's such a key part of this process, and you'll learn that from the basic training. Questions number one, three components to effect, four components to effective communication. Questions, listen, safe harbor, and honesty. But questions, not only will you find out the answers, the literal answers to those questions, <clears throat> but you will find out what their attitude is, whether they even really care, whether they think it's important, whether this whole thing is just boring them, you know, whether, you know, this, what is, this is, this isn't the way church is supposed to work, you know, I have to work, I have to do something, who came up with that? And, but you find out about their attitude, their motivation, their, their heart, their heart, you want people with your heart. Well, you find that out when you ask the question. So you get more than just a literal answer. You'll be shocked at the kinds of things. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I'll tell you about a shock in a minute. Um, 70, say and write. 90, a pleasant shock. Say and do. So these are all percentages. Now, so what, let's look at this. So what could we learn from this? Well, look, 70 say, 90 say and do. So get them to teach others. Don't do it for them. Let your people teach your people. You've been teaching them. Now you let them, that's how you learn these things. Who benefits the most from the teaching? The teacher. Yeah, so let them teach it. You stop teaching it. Then they have to study. They have to look at it like, I'm going to have to share something. Uh, what was that again? <laughs> and let them teach it. That's, that'll be the fastest way they're going to learn it. And secondly, what they do. So I just read it. Empower them. Give them, stretch them. Stretch them. Push them. Get them across over to where it's uncomfortable. But be with them, partner with them. Don't just cast them adrift. You're, gonna, you're teaming up with them. That's why your job is, was 30%, now it's 
you investing in them. That's what, that's what IBM, that's what Welch, that's what they do. They invest in their people. That's what Wexner found out when he said, I, I'm stuck, I, got, I plateaued at $5 billion. Why? Because he wasn't discipling it, he wasn't building leaders. But, but the key is, is, in the teaching process, is Jesus modeled that, asking questions. And he did it to call attention to his words. He also did it, call, he wanted them to speak the answer. So they owned it. They discovered their own learning, which is what, how it gets in here. It gets etched in your spirit when you discover it. Not when somebody rams it down your throat. And you'll, you'll be shocked. That's how you evaluate their heart, whether they care. When I, I, what I thought of when I said that, and I haven't said this in years. When I worked in New York, and I worked, uh, the commute was two hours each way, but I wanted to raise our kids, and Carol and I wanted to raise our kids in the country, so the commute was two hours, if, if the wind was behind me, and uh, on the train, which broke down about half the times you get on the train. They didn't invest anything in the uh, New York, New Haven, Hartford Railroad, so the thing used to break down all the time. So many times it was three, four hours of commuting, which was, yes, insane. You could question my judgment. Uh, but, but, but uh, Todd was our, our youngest, our oldest son, but our son at that time was, was three, Todd, who is our oldest. And, and uh, I, uh, he was about this high. I gave him a uh, New York Giants foot. You'll remember this one, just like the guy with the garbage can. You know, you'll remember these things. Uh, stories are good things, actually. Yeah. That's what CEOs do. They tell their people stories. Uh, so, that, so that's a very, Pastor Del Turco's uh, wife, Verna, always said, you, you, got, you got to keep telling more stories. I said, I, you've heard I She said, well, I need to hear him again. I like him. And Pastor Laura told me, you know, you need to be more humorous. You're not as, you're not as funny this year as you were last year. So I'll try to help you out, Pastor. She came all the way from Nice, so let's bless her. But, but I, so Todd was, Todd was this tall, and uh, I was a New York Giants fan uh, growing up and being born and growing up in that area. And uh, so we were going to go out and, well, first of all, I bought him a regulation-sized New York Giants helmet. You know, not that cardboard <laughs> stuff you get at Woolworths. But the real deal, you know, the kind that Lawrence Taylor and even before him, Sam Huff wore, you know, and it's the main, it's the, it's the same helmet, you know, I went to the real deal. So he's, so the helmet, big helmet, you know, and he's this tall. So he's, he's over there, we're going we're gonna to start the game, you know, we're going to, the game's kicking off right now. And so he's standing there, and I'm right here, and I would throw him the football like this. And he would catch it, and then he would throw it back to me like that. And it was going pretty good until I threw it just a little off center, and he leaned over to get it, and he fell, <laughs> over. He fell over on the ground like that. And so I, the game, that was kind of halftime or maybe the end of the game. And, and uh, so we laid down in the grass. And it was one of those incredible New England days where it's cool and crisp and the big white puffy 
clouds are blowing by and the sun is still warm on your body. We're laying in the cool grass and it's, and it's uh, it, you know, it, it was great. It was one of those great moments, Kodak moment. And we're, we, we're laying, he's here, in my, cradled in my arm like this, and we're laying back and I'm watching the clouds go by and he's kind of nestled right here next to me with his helmet off now. And, uh, <laughs> and he's looking up like this at his dad. And so, you know, I knew about asking questions. <laughs> So I kind of drew from my corporate experience, and I, uh, so I said, so, so Todd, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he's looking over at me like this, into my face. And there, you know, you're supposed to give hang time, you know, wait, you know, give him plenty of time to formulate the, so I, I'm waiting, I'm being patient, and he's looking at me, and, and nothing happened. So he's just still looking at me, staring at me. And so I asked the question again. I said, so, Todd, when you get older, what do you, when you grow up, what do you want to be? He's looking at me again, long hang time. He said, when I grow up, I want to have hair in my nose. <laughs> So when you ask a question, you never know what answer you're going to get, is the point. And hopefully you'll remember that answers are so valuable because they reveal things that you can't assume. And he got his dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's 44 and has hair in his nose. <laughs> yeah. um, let, me, let me share one other thing with you here. Um, there's a company called Synovus, and a guy named Jim Blanchard is the CEO. And uh, you know, you've heard me say repetition is a motor of learning, and it is. And it's the, re the point I want to make here is you can't repeat this stuff enough. You've heard, you know, you gotta continually cast the vision. You gotta, you know, make it plain, but you gotta keep doing that. You gotta keep doing that. What, what, any of these important things, like what is our brand? What's our USP? What's our value system? What's our DNA? That, you can't do that enough. Hopefully you're, you've uh, experienced that or you've heard enough from me to realize that. So it's a, repetition is a valuable tool. And it's a, uh, to cultivate the learning culture. And, and you have to have a learning culture, I said the other day, because that creates all the other cultures. Accountability, commitment, discipleship culture. Any culture that you want to establish, but it starts with the learning culture. You have to have people ready and willing and eager and responsive to learn, like you. The teachable spirit that Carol said you had such an abundance of. And so repetition can't be too much. But he, uh, he had a, uh, a story, a concept. And he said, repetition is how we do it. 
he explained, bringing the group, bringing the group, the group back to focus. At every gathering, our flock, he was a Christian businessman, marketplace minister. At every gathering, our flock hears the same sermon over and over and over. We tell the same stories, emphasize the same concepts. When we meet, it's not an information meeting. Although, see, you don't need any more of those. They got the information by now, or you're working on getting it to them. But if you're ready to transition, they've got the, the, the uh, information. They've got a, a number of these. It's not a training session, although from time to time we may coach and teach and train and mentor. It's not a classroom, although sometimes we do educate. Uh, it is a cultural discussion. A cultural discussion, who we are, what we stand for, what we're about, how we function here, and how everybody must function here. It's a, it's a cultural discussion or essay presented to reestablish continually, repeatedly, what we stand for, what our core values are, and what our value chain is. That's what we believe works best in a company rather than a bunch of rules. People ask me a lot, you know, well, how do you feel about job description? I, I, they're fine if you want to have them, I, but they're not, they're not going to cut it. They're, they're not going to cut because you got job descriptions tend to put people in a box. Oh, this is all I do. You see right here? And as long as I do that, I don't have to think outside of the box. Just got this box right here. It's dangerous. Now, it's good to clarify, you know, these are your, but then you better clarify, you know, we need innovation here. Because if you're going to be the visionary and the entrepreneur, we have to have an innovation culture. We've got to have people that are creative, or you're not going to, how are you going to accomplish those things? You're not, you can't sit down and figure all that stuff out. We established that in the basic training. You don't think anymore. You think about what God needs, but you're not creating all the things that the ministry has to do. Other people have to think, and you have better have a lot of good thinking. And, they, and it's in them. You've got to pull it out of them. You've got to mine those rich deposits that are in them. You have to force the discipline on innovation, and if I get to it, I'll tell you what that means. But it's a cultural discussion or essay presented to reestablish who we are, what we stand for, our core values, our value chain. That's what we believe works best. If your culture is strong and clear, it is communicated cons consistently, uh, then there are no misgivings or ambiguities about what the culture is, then you're not, going to get too you're not going to get people too far afield. That's how they can make decisions in your absence, because they understand the parameters that the culture, the DNA, the value system, and the, and the working system represents. Repetition, he said, is the number one thing. You must instill in them a culture. So, to be ultimate, you have to have ultimate intellectual capital, people that can think and innovate and solve problems. And that's how you get to optimize results. Make it, but now, your job as the ultimate CEO is to make others successful. And you've been working on that. Now your job is to make others, make others successful. Are you hearing me? 
So focus is now on the success of others. And that's what you must ensure they understand. And they understand. And they understand. And anybody who has somebody behind them in the pipeline must understand that, their, that our success here, their success, and then ultimately our success is our focus on the success of others. Getting people to achieve things that they didn't think were possible on their own. Crossing over. Doing the greatest good that they can for the good of others. We're a growth-oriented ministry, and the biggest thing we have to grow here is you. Why? So that you can then grow others. Because it's you who will make this ministry better and better again as you make others better. It's not what you accomplish, but what you set in motion through others. So it's less control and greater command. And that's how we develop ultimate people. Remember last year, I used the word that I couldn't pronounce. I had just discovered it. And I butchered it. It's a French word. I'm, I'm coming closer to saying it correctly. We have French-speaking people here from Quebec, Canada. We have the people from the Riviera of France. And I'm going to say that this word is huissant. Wasn't that sweet? <laughs> Did I get it? Well, listen, it, it's, it means something entirely different than the way, you know, that, I think that was part of my problem because it means strength and forceful and things I'm going to read. So I was trying to make the word sound like that. But it, it means producing great effects. It means forcible, powerful, efficacious, potent. It means having great authority with respect, you know, not demeaning control. Uh, mighty, influential. It means powerful in skill or in a moral sense, in integrity. Powerful, mighty, strong, able, efficient, forcible, efficacious, cogent is another one, influential. And now, that's what you needed last year as a maximum CEO. Now what we need is these people to become puissant. It's your job. Others. Entrepreneurs drive innovation. I just want to point out a couple of things. The entrepreneur, you, the ultimate CEO, the entrepreneur, is the, you're all entrepreneurs, but you're not in the right position yet. Let, that, let me make that point. You, you were an entrepreneur back here. You were created to be an entrepreneur. That's why you're, in, that's why you're God's point person over this ministry, because you are a visionary, and you are those things, but they're not happening here because of the dysfunction. And now you became a leader and became more of a visionary, more of an entrepreneur. Now you're segueing over here to the ultimate where you can be predominantly the visionary. But if you're going to be predominantly getting more vision and being entrepreneurial, then we need people who can innovate. So your field of dreams needs to be supported with ultimate innovation. And so the entrepreneur is the driving force. 
the mover, the hero who sees opportunity, who grasps the importance of a concept, knows when to assume risk, and in the end accumulates the greatest success for God. And Peter Drucker called entrepreneurs opportunity seekers. So you're, you're going to be more involved, more free, freedom, more free to be seeking opportunity. And so the danger then is in the seismic shift here is that you'll be seeking opportunity all the time and forgetting the things we just talked about, protecting the system and deepening the discipleship. That's the danger. Hear me. We, you need to go to be the visionary and the entrepreneur, but you cannot forget to protect the system and to deepen, 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 deepen the discipleship. You must create, I mentioned yesterday, innovation clusters. Innovation clusters. Mixing different disciplines, different backgrounds, different ways to view a situation, and taking high potential innovative people and cross-roughing them and letting them learn from each other how they think and how they create. That, those are innovation clusters. And, and that's, that's a tool I used to use, and it's a tool uh, in, in the corporate world, and it's a tool I use in, in the ministry world. But I, I'm speaking of teams that cluster top talent from diverse parts of the ministry. So you move them out of their specialty or their little, their box over here or their little, uh, their assignment, their division, their department, and you cross rough them and put them on assignment. So th that's how you accelerate their learning because they see how other people think, how their people process information and come up with creative ideas. So from diverse parts of the ministry on projects requiring ideation through collaboration, cross-roughing perspectives and thought processes. And that's how, that's how you develop and, and uh, ascertain competency level in high potential people too. But you must, as an ultimate innovator, uh, or the, the fa facilitating innovation, ultimately, you must creatively craft ways to make your teams think they can do anything. See? You're, you're, you're telling them they can cross over. I'll, let me tell you why you can, I believe in you. I see things in you. And remember, you crossed over that back there, and you did it. Yeah, that was scary, it was painful, but remember, we worked together, and you can do this. And I see strengths in you that maybe you're not giving yourself credit, but you can cross over. That's discipleship. Make your teams think they can do anything. So there's an art to that. You, your job is not to creatively figure out how, how to solve the problem or fix or, or create the vision, make it happen, but your job is to fa facilitate the innovation in the ministry that will do that. But you don't do it. So you develop creative exuberance. Directing the flow of energy and talent toward innovation. That's your job making sure it's happening, challenging them, stretching them. Because the, what do you hear all the time? Yeah, oh, we can't do that. That's impossible. No, it wouldn't work. You know. Think outside the box. Redefining the possible is your job. And how about this one? I like this term. And when I heard it many, many years ago, I've used it numerous times with, with my creative teams. Waking up the team. Waking up the team. 
or, or we could also um, call it forcing creativity. F f waking up the team or forcing creativity. What am I talking about? Well, here's, a, this, this, here's another story, uh, but you'll be able to relate to this and you'll be able to remember this. <clears throat> Coca-Cola and PepsiCo are always duking it out. And they're always trying to capture a minuscule percentage of the market share. I mean, they're trying to capture more, but they get happy with a minuscule victory over the enemy. So they're, they're jockeying back and forth for market share. And when Roger Enrico, I believe that's who it was, I haven't read the case study in many years, but when he came out, took over as CEO, he said, I've got to wake up this team. I've got to force the discipline here of innovation and creativity, because this is, we're stuck. We're stuck on seeing the opportunity as beating Pepsi by a fraction of a decimal point. Oh, we had a great year. We got a 0.01% victory over Pepsi. And they were, he said, I haven't, I, I, I got to wake these people up. They're, they're not seeing the opportunity here. And so what did he do? He asked them a question. He got them all together, all the key guys, all the key executives, got them together. And he said, he asked them, he said, okay, a big group like this. He said, okay, we got the, he talked about the share of the market and the 1.0% that they thought was so great and such a great victory. And he had to pull the plug at them there, a pride. And he said, okay, we, got, we know what the share of our market is, what our share of the market is, but what's our share of the stomach? And they all looked at him like, share of the stomach. And what he meant was, what he told them he meant, they didn't know how to respond. What he meant was, what's our market share of everything people drink? That's our competition, guys, not Pepsi. It's what people drink, water, orange juice, not just even soft drinks. That's, that's a small part of the market. What are, what's our share of the stomach? That's the way we need to start thinking around here, getting a bigger share of the stomach. The same thing happened. I, he, may have, he may have even heard about that. In fact, I think that's what the case study said that the, the guy that was then heading up, um, and I honestly, I can't remember whether it was Ryder or Penske or uh, Hertz or whoever has a trucking fleet. I think it was Ryder. And he had all the trucking <laughs> geniuses, the, the leaders from all over the country, uh, and I think even internationally, they, he called them all to the headquarters. And they were so busy trying to beat each other up. You know, let's, let's beat up, if we're a rider, let's beat up Penske. And let's, you know, beat up the, other, the competition. And he did the same thing. He said, what's our share of trucks? And what, what happened as a result of that, was, what he meant as a result of that was, you know, there are, every company has trucks. They have to get the stuff from here to there. Most of them have their own fleets of trucks. 
They have to maintain the trucks. They have to hire guys. They're not even in the trucking business. They don't know diddly about trucking, but they got trucks. Let's get a share of trucks. And so the, now the, the horizon's been opened up and it's like the marketplace is, is people that use trucks. And let's get them to lease our trucks where we maintain them. And we take, and, okay, and so that's what Enrico, when he did it with Pepsi and this guy is doing, that's what I'm recommending you do. You've got to wake up the team and you've got to expand. That's your job. You know, you don't do that every day, but every once in a while, you got to put some energy, as I just read, into this, into this thing. Wake up the team and force the creativity. The number one reason for the failure of CEOs, the Wall Street Journal reported this, a number one failure, uh, the number one reason for the failure of CEOs in the world system, the, the, so the corporate, secular CEOs out there, the number one reason for their failure, for their dismissal, for their firing, is their inability to deal with their own poorly performing direct reports. It said subordinates. I don't like that word. It implies they're dumb and you know subservient, and that's the antithesis of what I'm teaching you. You want to surround yourself with people smarter than you. We're just in a relationship to build the kingdom for God. And so I don't like that word subordinates, but that was the quote. It, number one reason for the failure of CEOs is their inability to deal with their own poorly performing subordinates. I changed to the direct reports. So, <clears throat> and, and uh, we started the first day talking about IBM. But let me just share a couple things here that amplify my points. We have to close her down here quickly. <clears throat> a good, good boards of directors, and many of them now are catching on to the value of this. Good boards of, the boards of the company that are over the CEOs, they spend, the good ones, spend an entire day ensuring that the CEO is developing top leaders, developing these guys. He's up here, but is he developing? And the board comes in for an entire day. That's all they do. They have other board matters, so they're there for more than one day. But in one entire day, these companies, and this one happens to be IBM, again, <clears throat> they spend an entire day on how we're developing our top leaders. So they're asking the top dog, how are you developing top, and they're grilling them with questions. Well, God will do that to you. What are you doing? How are you discipling my people, making them more valuable for me so I can build this work I assigned you to? I told you, number one this year is, I, is IBM in leader development. And you know that story about, I told you, about $100 million to train 30,000 employees to become leaders. Well, that was, th this article here says that despite working, um, here it, it uh, says leadership development, IBM, spending almost $700 million a year 
on leadership development? How much are you spending? He says, because my lead over the competition is probably a half of an inch. Well, you know, we said, well, we don't have competition like IBM. Yes, we do. The devil's eating our lunch. When, when he can keep us from keeping only 15 to 20, 10 to 15 percent of the people God sends, and he gets the rest. It went on to say, it's best to tailor stretch enrichment exercises to the future business environment. And I've told you that. <clears throat> the future business environment, the one, you, the one you heard articulated by the advisory board up here, first day. That's the future business environment. And what this is saying is you have to stretch, you have to have stretch assignments. They know what's going to be required of them in the years to come. And so we have to stretch the people to be able to accommodate or to be able to handle the workload that's coming, not only in volume like this, but in complexity, new challenges, things we've never done before. Virgin territory, brand new things that we don't know very much about. We have to start preparing them now. Ultimate talent, ultimate talent is the key. Well, we, we have to uh, take a break for um, lunch. And then uh, we'll be back at 2 o'clock. Uh, great session. A, a great session on how to uh, implement. It's an implementation session. So it's going to be, how do you do this? How do you do certain things? How do you help people learn how to do this? The very thing we just said. How do we help people down here, starting here, but all the way back, how do we help them learn how to do these things? 